Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. We're speaking today with the author Jessica Messman Griffith. We're talking about her work both as a writer and as a gatherer of fellow spiritual pilgrims along life's way. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jessica Messman Griffith. She's a Catholic writer, widely published. Her work has been noted in Best American Essays. She's also the author of Grace-Filled Days and the co-author of The Daily Inspiration for Women. She also wrote the 2013 book Love and Salt with Amy Andrews. It's a spiritual friendship shared in letters, and the book won the 2014 Christopher Award for Literature that Affirms the Highest Values of the Human Spirit. She's the curator of the Sick Pilgrim blog and the online spiritual community of the same name, which features writers and artists who engage with the Catholic faith in a variety of ways. Jessica Mesman Griffith, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks so much for having me. There's so much that you do that I could talk to you about. It's been hard to shape how I think this conversation should flow. And so I think that the best place to start might be simply to talk a little bit about your journey, how you got to this place of faith and how your childhood and how some events around your life have moved you to the place that you are right now. Well, I always, I begin every interview, every essay, every story with my mother died when I was 14. It's a refrain. I've just accepted it. I've gotten, I was self-conscious about it for a while. Like how many times can I write about my dead mother? How many times can I talk about this grief? But it was the turning point of my life. And My writing has always explored issues of grief and trauma, and I think for a while I thought that that was, like I said, it was an embarrassment. Like, I got to find some other material. But, you know, at some point I realized, you know, this is exactly how God works. Like, the things you think he can't use, the things you are embarrassed about, the horrible events of your life. You're, you know, for me, it was depression and grief and anxiety and my mother's death. And, you know, these were the things that I thought surely prevented me from being a good writer or a good Christian, even a functional human being (laughs) or like, you know, living fully into my vocation. I often felt like, God, if I wasn't depressed, if I wasn't still grieving, if I wasn't dealing with all this trauma and anxiety, I would be writing epic novels and, you know, creating great art. 
But when I began to write from those places because I couldn't do anything else, I realized, I saw it immediately almost, a change in response to my work. When I started really embracing it and just saying, you know, this is me, this is what I got to bring to the table, these wounds, this experience. It was overwhelming because I realized it was precisely in those broken places that God could work. Those were the things he wanted me to talk about and to use for my healing in some ways, but more importantly, for like the healing of others, for the, for the accompaniment of my readers. That was what I would get in response to these the essays I was writing, the work I was doing, the book Love and Salt that I wrote with Amy Andrews. People felt accompanied and spoken to on a, on a almost like a friend. And we would get these letters, these very personal, emotional letters back in response to our work with people just saying thank you for saying it out loud. Thank you for writing it down on the page that, you know, sometimes wounds don't heal and time doesn't heal everything. And there, you know, we don't get the resurrection in this life that we're, we're praying for. We don't get the miracle. And let's tell those stories in spiritual writing because I, I, I think we, we wrote the book and we started writing the essays and the stories that we weren't, we just weren't seeing told anywhere. This was you and Amy in Love and, Love and Salt. Right. And we, I saw personally, I mean, I am a career spiritual writer. It's what I do. It's what I teach. It's, it's, it's the stories I love. But in contemporary spiritual writing, I wasn't seeing when I was, you know, this was 10 years ago when we wrote Love and Salt at this point. We weren't seeing those stories being told. We weren't seeing um, Amy experienced a stillbirth, and she went looking for some sort of consolation in books because that's what we do. We're writers, and we're spiritual writers, and we're Catholics. So she was looking, you know, for some kind of deep exploration of her experience or something to mirror her experience back to her, and there was just nothing. There were, you know, like how-to manuals of how to overcome this, or there were, like, things that we felt were really skimming over the— hard parts. Um, not letting you just, something to just like sit in that grief with you and admit that it's horrible and that it's tragic and unfair and that there isn't an easy resolution to sit in that tension with you. I, I see gratitude from people constantly for the for writing that does that, that just accepts that tension. I want to say, first of all, thank you for trusting me and trusting our listeners with that starting place. And I'm very sorry for the loss of your mother. I'm also fascinated by that as a starting place because in many ways, things not seen got started with the death of my mother in 2009. And one of the things that happened in my grief was I was a rising academic, a professor, and I lost the ability to write. Like yeah. I got entire graphophobia. I could not even write longhand for a good deal of the time. And wow. a very wise person said to me one day, well, you can't write, but you can still talk. So maybe there's a way that you could begin to have meaningful academic discussions and record them. And that eventually morphed into this show, Things Not Seen, which got started around 2011, 2012. And so for six years, I've been riding on this wave of talking while I've been trying to get the writing to come back. And so the fact wow. that you you also mark that as a touchstone moment for you as kind of the beginning of your journey, I really, really resonate with that. That's a powerful thing just for me. And I appreciate, first of all, you sharing that, but also I, I, I appreciate what that means that you're bringing to this conversation, because I, I really feel a parallel spiritual walk in many ways with what you're trying to talk about. I knew there was a reason I love this show. <laughs> <laughs> you're very kind. So this project that you did with Amy, 
Mm-hmm. It was a series of letters. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that you basically built your friendship in a literary way by a Lenten practice of sending letters back and forth to one another. Is that correct? Correct. So Amy and I met in graduate school at the University of Pittsburgh. We were in an MFA program for creative writing. And at the time, it was quite hostile to Christianity. Cultural studies ruled the day. Um, we were not allowed to take faith seriously. It just it just wasn't done. And I was a spiritual writer, so <laughs> that was a problem from go. So I, I, I tried to be other things, and they just fell flat. So eventually I just started doing it. And um, to the... Um, consternation of my faculty advisors and all of that and their great (laughs) disappointment. But Amy was in one of my workshops and and we just had one of these moments where we realized we both really believed and looked at each other across the table and sort of shared a moment of recognition like, oh, you too, huh? (laughs) She was writing about Passionist Nuns in Pittsburgh. And I think we were both trying to maintain a sort of ironic distance from our material so that it would be palatable and acceptable to our workshop. But when we found each other, we realized we didn't need to do that. And so we really began writing to each other. And it's when I really began to develop as a writer because I'd found a reader. And I think that that's so important. And it's still, that's why writing those letters to her changed my life as a writer and as as a human being, because having that reader in mind, she's still my reader. Even we're not writing letters anymore. We're not. But every essay I write, every story I write, I imagine her as the listener and having and imagining that flesh and blood person on the other end of the conversation changes everything. So we started, we started a friendship, but it was really close to graduation. And then we graduated and moved on. She moved to Chicago. I moved to Notre Dame in Indiana. And so our friendship may have just sort of fizzled at that point, but she decided to convert to Catholicism. She was not Catholic. She had been raised in an agnostic home, really no religion. But she'd always sort of been attracted to the Catholic Church, and that's why she was writing about those passionist nuns. And then when she met me, and I was a practicing Catholic, she was like, maybe maybe there's something to this. Maybe I could do this. So she started going to St. Gregory's in Chicago and decided to convert, and she asked me to be her sponsor and I was just sort of like, I don't know if I can be a sponsor. Like, I'm a Catholic, but I'm not a good Catholic. And this this ties into the kind of doubts that you were talking about before. Exactly. Like, I'm, I've got a broken place. I'm wounded. I'm exactly. not. Yeah. I'm a hot mess. You don't want me leading you into the church. And, you know, Amy's so wonderful and so loving and smart. And she's older than I am by a few years. And, and she, she's just wise. She was like, well, we'll be leading each other. And I said, okay, so how are we going to do this? Because I don't live there. And she's like, well, let's write to each other. We'll write each other letters and we'll we'll make it. She's, she'd never done Lent before, so it was like thrilling. Like, I get to do Lent. This is so cool, you know? So she's like, for Lent, you know, instead of giving something up, let's write a letter a day. And we'll just tell each other our stories from the beginning of, you know, our lives in relation to God, how we got to this point. And so that's what started the practice. We did it for Lent and we just fell in love with letter writing. We wrote them by hand and having that practice every day of sitting down to in in the silence to write to like an imagined friend, you know, when you're conjuring the presence of this person, it really, and we talk about this a lot, it really became sacramental. 
to make the the letter makes the friendship real. It's an artifact of the friendship. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the author Jessica Messman Griffith. We were we're talking about her 2013 book Love and Salt, which chronicled her spiritual friendship with Amy Andrews, shared in letters. We'll be back in a moment. Looking for signs of hope in the Chicagoland education scene? Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education serves 15 schools in Chicago and nearby suburbs with scholarship funding for students and families in search of quality, faith-based educational options. Visit brightpromisefund.org to learn more about schools where students flourish. Good schools make for good neighborhoods. brightpromisefund.org. That's brightpromisefund.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jessica Messman Griffith. She's an author and spiritual curator of events and communities that help to bring together people who are on the road of faith wherever they are in the journey. We've been discussing her 2013 book co-written with Amy Andrews, Love and Salt, a chronicle of spiritual friendship shared in letters. And the letters tell all of these stories up to the point where my child is born and then six months later, Amy's child is stillborn. And that's the turning point of the book. And that's where things get really serious. At first, it's a lot of like, religion is great. The Catholic Church is beautiful. We're so excited to have found this space of like beauty and mystery and ritual. And and it isn't all of this just like the answer to what we've been looking for as artists and seekers. And then death came (laughs) and knocked us down flat because that wasn't the way the story was supposed to end. We were supposed to have daughters of the same age who were going to grow up together, and she's the godmother of my daughter, and I was going to be the godmother of her daughter. And our lives had really been wrapped up in this, like, well, now we're Catholic, we're holy, we're going to live right, and we're going to reap the rewards, and then we're like, oh, that's not how it works at all. So the rest of the book is us trying to come to terms with what it means, and it the loss of her child rekindles all the grief wounds that I was already, you know, not dealing very well with. So it becomes a conversation about questioning God's providence, whether, you know, what kind of God would let a baby die. That's really the question of the book. And in the end, we don't come to some neat conclusion, but our friendship becomes so important to our survival of that tragedy. What we realized, you know, we're looking for God everywhere. We're reading theology. We're reading philosophy. We're trying to come up with an answer to why this happened and where God is and where can we find God in this horrible event? How could it possibly, any of this possibly be real? And then in the end we find, but he's here between us. So, In the process of talking about this friendship with Amy Andrews, you are mentioning the fact that, you know, a touchstone for you has been honesty about grief. You mentioned the stillborn child that Amy Andrews had, the loss of the child. And you mentioned that that reawakened for you your own kind of sore points and broken points. Mm -hmm. And so I'm aware that this is kind of a starting place for you, not just with this book with Amy Andrews, but also with many other projects that you have done, you have invited people to come to you with their brokenness. Is that a fair characterization? Mm -hmm. 
So you have led with your vulnerability, if I may say that, and you have invited people to share out of their vulnerability. And I'm interested now for our listeners, what has that meant for you in terms of fear and risk? And what has it also meant for you in terms of reward? Well, when you expose your vulnerabilities for a living or for not a very good living, you know, it's hard because you risk humiliation and you risk falling flat on your face and you risk being... And you risk being an embarrassment to yourself or your family. I, that part, I don't know. I don't want to say I have any like great humility, but it is always so far eclipsed by the response of the reader who is so grateful to have someone finally say what they have felt that they couldn't. So whenever I see the way that it touches people, it, it you know, my reservations kind of fall away because I feel like this and I always go back to that idea that like Jesus works through our wounds and if he can use my wounds if he can use these things that you know are, are it's my cross and I'm gonna have to carry it there I can't I've tried everything to get this thing off my back <laughs> it's not going anywhere but if he can use that to make to you know to make himself real to another then I just feel like if I can give that gift, then it's worth doing. But then you also risk, you know, when you get a bunch of vulnerable people together, a bunch of wounded, traumatized people, people can sometimes get hurt. And that has happened in our community. And we have to be careful about that because you want to invite people in and you want to accompany them and you want to give them, you want to give them that space to be vulnerable, but you also have to protect them. And so I've, I have struggled with balancing that, you know, where is the line? Where, when have things gotten a little too weird? <laughs> when have things gotten too dangerous and when do we need to pull back? And I come from a recovery background and 12-step is very important in kind of my own survival. And I hear in what you're saying a resonance with the communities that I've been around. Just the, the notion that people coming together in their vulnerability can be a very powerful healing place. Mm -hmm. It can also be a place where where people can come and take advantage mm -hmm. and and you know we're we're all wired for certain things and uh and we have to be careful when those wires are exposed i guess is what i'm wanting to say yeah and i think we you know sick pilgrim has a certain aesthetic and a lot of it is tongue in cheek i mean we we are, we call ourselves goth and we're dark and everything's black and white and we use you know old spooky vintage photographs and I mean, it's kind of me making fun of, like, me being a parody of myself. I mean, that's who I am. I love the Smiths, and I'm always going to be the girl, like, in my bedroom with my headphones on listening to Morrissey. Like, so a lot of that is my personality coming through in the look and aesthetic of the blog. But I, I don't want to just wallow. <laughs> and I, I think that's really important. And I think it's important within our community, too, that we cannot— allow ourselves to always stay in those dark places. But I've found that when you're open and you're vulnerable, like mostly it hasn't been a problem. Mostly there's been this great respect for each other and for what everyone's going through. And the sense of humor that has emerged from the blog too and from the community is so great and so uplifting. And I find more often than not, you know, we do these things like the dark devotional every Friday, which is another sort of tongue in cheek. We're going to take the mass readings for the weekend and we're just going to be like 
dead honest about how we feel about them. Like, oh, this is BS or this is what, or we're going to think about like all the horrible preaching we've ever heard on this one topic or all the platitudes that Christians want to sling at you about this reading from the Bible. And we're just going to go for it. And so often you think, okay, dark devotional, we're going to go and we can, we're going to be as dark and nasty as we want to be. But in the end, you come back around it's like you go full circle and you, you, you fight with it and you argue with it and you wrestle with the text and you wrestle with God and you wrestle with Jesus. And in the end, you're like, yeah, you were right. <laughs> so you, you, we are accidentally inspirational. We, we use that phrase a lot, accidentally inspirational. We don't intend to be. Often we're contrarian and we, I want to give people a space to be vocal about their doubts and their, the things that they're tired to death of hearing from the church. And, but it, it always it always comes back around. It's just amazing how that happens. Two themes that you're bringing out here. One is a very Pauline theme, the sort of notion of the thorn in the side. And yes. when, when you talk about the way that you have worked with your woundedness and your honesty about it, you know, you've, you've wished in some ways that it would go away. But you also noted early in the conversation that it was when you began to embrace that woundedness that your authenticity began to ring through and readers and audiences began to really respond. So I, I hear mm-hmm. strongly that Pauline theme. I also am hearing the Apostle Thomas, you know, the, the desire for a come on, Jesus. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it sounds like that Friday dark devotional is mm-hmm. kind of a, an exercise in that Thomas moment of like, you got you got to show me better than this. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it's also been a great, I mean, there's so much overlap in what Sick Pilgrim has become and what it does. You know, we're a space for grieving people, a space for wounded people, a space for people questioning faith or testing faith, but we're also a space for writers and artists. So, and often there's a lot of overlap in those categories because the things that wound us and make us sensitive are the things that make us artists. So the dark devotional is also a way for me to be like, you know what? Anyone can write these. I'm not going to be a gatekeeper. The great thing about a blog is I can publish whatever I want. There's no overhead. There's no, I don't want to, um, I'm not a literary journal editor. This isn't about that. Like I want it to almost be a workshop for people to develop their skills as spiritual writers. And and we've given, so we give anyone the opportunity to write one. There's really no, um, like I said, there's no gatekeeping. You just sign up for a date, you read the mass reading, and you give me what you come up with. And we have discovered some amazing, natural, gifted writers that way who never, who just were never invited to do it. So that's another, you know, that, that, you know, another ministry grew out of that to be a place for writing to develop. Because if we want great spiritual writing and we want real, honest, tough, spiritual writing and vulnerable spiritual writing, we have to have a place for it. And who's publishing that? Well, we can publish it. So that's what we do. And so, it, and it's grown from there. It's so many um, people who wouldn't think about faith matters and artists who are attracted to our community because of the arts, not because of religion, will then start to think about, you know, the what are the attractions of this? What are the, and you know, they're all, we're all attracted to mystery. Artists are attracted to mystery. So contemplating religion in those terms or contemplating faith in those terms, I'm seeing artists approach faith who wouldn't approach faith before. And then seeing people of faith approach the arts who wouldn't have approached the arts as a way to live out their faith. And it's just like beautiful synergy happening that I didn't, I, I dreamed might happen, but I didn't know how to make it happen. <laughs> you know, it was like a, it was, a goal I didn't even know I had. And so once I started recognizing that happening, 
I wanted to make sure that I cultivated it and made lots of other opportunities for that to happen, which is how I started a conference at Notre Dame called Trying to Say God, where we had really wonderful established spiritual writers like Mary Carr come and speak. But then we also invited these emerging writers and people who were just developing their interest in it to come and share their work, to have open mics, to be on panels, to to share what they're doing and what their thoughts are and what their current projects are with people who are doing the work for a living. And there was no space like that, especially within Catholic writing. There was no space like that. And, you know, for people all over the map with no political agenda, no, you know, just coming together to talk about art and writing in the context of faith. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the author Jessica Messman-Griffith. We're talking about her work both as a writer and as a gatherer of fellow spiritual pilgrims along life's way. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Jessica Messman-Griffith. She's an author, and she is also an event planner and a curator of spiritual communities of various types, both in face-to-face meetings, but also online. So, Jessica, a moment ago, you began to talk about the Trying to Say God conference at Notre Dame, and I also am aware that you have created or helped to curate a conference in Pittsburgh called the Festival of Friendship. You are doing a lot of these face-to-face events, and I wonder if we could just take a moment and you could sort of outline so our listeners have a sense of kind of what these events are like, like what what is accomplished there. One of the problems that I noticed as a Catholic writer, first of all, it, it can be a liability to refer to yourself as such because you're pigeonholed. And a lot of people resist that. And we have a certain thing in mind when we think of Catholic writer now. We either think of, okay, our classic canon of Catholic writers, Flannery O'Connor, Thomas Merton, Walker Percy, that whole crew of people that we have lionized to the point where we're almost like afraid to even try because how could we ever be anything even approaching O'Connor? And we bemoan the fact that, you know, those glory days of that Catholic renaissance of that time period are over. Catholics aren't taken seriously in the art world anymore. You know, so many think pieces, so much ink has been spilled on this. I just felt like, you know, part of the problem is we have no, it it needs to come from the ground up, you know, not from the top down. We can't like create artistic community just in the ivory, ivory tower or in the literary journals. Like someone, we, we have to cultivate something so that it can grow up. So where, how do we serve, you know, fledgling artists or, or people who don't even know that it's, that it's a possibility for their life to like do this kind of work because people like me who went to graduate school in hostile environments, hostile secular places that aren't taking writing about faith seriously so if you're going to like work on your craft and be 
and, you know, try and uh, study literature, you kind of have to shunt that part of you off to the side. And then if you are a spiritual writer, you become, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to write devotional books. I do for a living, <laughs> but I mean, I, that, that seemed like the only path, like I have to do one or the other. And I, I feel like we, I wanted to come up with solutions instead of continuing to just diagnose the problem and why it was never going to work. So Sick Pilgrim was a part of that, and these conferences are also a part of that. We need places to bring, to gather people to be inspired, and not just with other writers, because that is often, I often find writing conferences detrimental to my writing. <laughs> I come home more depressed and like more discouraged than ever. But to bring the arts communities together, to bring painters and iconographers and musicians and sculptors and then also academics and scientists and educators, like, is there a way for us to all come together and share what we're working on in ways that can inspire each other? So while Trying to Say God was definitely a literary conference, it was also much more just like a wide-ranging exploration of the Catholic imagination. And I think that the Catholic imagination is what is so appealing, even to the secular artists. Like, well, I mean, we see it all the time. People will just drop little bits of Catholicism in because it's kind of sexy, you know? <laughs> and like, it's, um, it's, it's beautiful, it's rich, it's mysterious. It's this thing that artists respect, even if they don't like it. <laughs> so I wanted to explore that and why that is and invite people who are, another thing that trips us up as Catholics is there becomes a sort of orthodoxy policing at these events. If they're held at Catholic universities or churches, then you have to be careful about who you invite because you can't have an openly gay person reading their work, which I wasn't about to fall into that. So the only way I was going to have this event is if we could invite everyone to the table, everyone who's working within this, these issues, anyone who's inspired by the church, lapsed Catholics, um, I think the witness of the lapse is totally underrated. I mean, I can sniff out a lapsed Catholic from a mile away. And any artist, <laughs> writer, musician, I'm always like, oh, you were raised Catholic. Come on. So I wanted those people there because let's get to the bottom of this. Like, why can't we shake this out of our system? Why? I mean, that's what's exciting to me. And, and so just on a hunch, that's how we organized Trying to Say God. And it, and it went off beautifully. But Festival of Friendship is a little different in that it's much more wide-ranging in, in that we had people coming to talk about science and technology. We had someone come and talk to us about human trafficking. We had representatives from um, Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, which is a children's catechetical program, setting up their, they set up a beautiful um, sample atrium, which is how how they bring children up in the faith is through like direct experience of storytelling and they call it educating to wonder. All of these things that seem like, well, what does that have to do with art? What does that have to do with writing? But so much inspiration came out of that because as artists, we need to be, we need to have our, we need to have our hands everywhere. We need to be, we need to be reading everything. We need to be examining everything and, and we need to be drawing inspiration from that. But also because it was creating patrons for our work. So when we gave our reading at the end of the day and you had all of these other people from other disciplines coming to a poetry reading or a reading of essays and then you had a, a band come and play at the end of the day, like the, that's the sort of, you know, that cross-pollination. Where are we getting that? There's, there's no events like that for us. So I, 
I feel like there the those two conferences are doing two different things, but I'd also love to start taking what we're doing at Festival of Friendship and and having smaller events around the country just to show people that the importance of that kind of artistic community not being so insular, not just having your writers' events and your book club and your um, you know, your concert, but has showing how like all of the arts inform each other and also to create patrons to go to events. Because if you don't have anyone, you know, you can stage a beautiful event and three people will show up. But if you bring all of these different disciplines together and all these different experts together and all these different practitioners and kind of make them go see each other, you're like, guess what? You're staying for a musical performance now. Lock the door. They'll realize something. They'll realize how it speaks to them. And, and I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen it work. So it, it's just another hunch. Like, can we do this? Can we create some sort of culture on the ground that is not exclusive, that invites everyone to the table? And, and if we do that, how will that inspire us? And how will it change the work that we do? And, and I, I see it changing and I see it working. So I think my personal ministry and my work, the, the work I get most excited about is reaching out to artists in the church Mm -hmm. or artists who are attracted to the church or inspired by the church, making a space for them Mm -hmm. where they have previously not felt welcome or Mm -hmm. comfortable or appreciated or inspired. Um, Because we hear so much or we have over the years about how there's no culture of the arts in the Catholic church anymore. There's no great Catholic writers anymore. Um, We've lost that. And I just personally got tired of hearing it. Sure. Because I know plenty of artists who are doing wonderful work, but they were we were all kind of working in vacuum. Okay. So finding ways to bring us together because that kind of communion is so essential. And you've, you've mentioned at several points the kind of amateur, the amateur aesthetic that is a piece of this too. That mm-hmm. It's very important to you to be inviting and cultivating people that have not been given the props to say, hey, you're a great writer, come. And what is it like when you make that kind of invitation and you watch a person come into this community do you see blossoming? Do you see an explosion? Or do you see something much more subtle? It's been both. Okay. I mean, we've seen... Often what will happen is... Okay, so we have, you know, over 100 people in our community. There used to be more, but we um, we downsized so that we could keep sort of an intimate <laughs> feel. And also because people are sharing some pretty sensitive stuff sometimes and we and we do want to protect them so there is a tension there again between like gatekeeping and who you let in and who you but for the most part we're very open and um if you follow the rules of the group which are basically like don't be a jerk (laughs) then you're in so i'll watch these conversations happen in that group and i'll see someone who isn't a writer write some beautiful response or some beautiful reflection on something we've published and i'll just be like can i post that on the blog can I like, I will show you how you just wrote an essay and you don't even know it. That's happened so many times. And those are just beautiful moments because then that person's usually like, what? What? Are you sure? I don't know. And I have to talk them into it. But then they see. And then I, I, I've, I've seen writers just realize that they're writers <laughs> just from writing a comment on Facebook. So that's an exciting moment. And then there are these other times when People who have met through our community end up working together. We have um, a poet, Joanna Penn Cooper, who connected with another Catholic writer, Rebecca Bratton Weiss. Joanna's not Catholic, but they ended up working together to like 
make sure that they wrote a poem a day for National Poetry Month. And through that collaboration, ended up discovering that they really inspired each other with their writing. Two totally different personalities, totally different kinds of writers started writing this amazing poetry together. And so they formed their own little collective called the George Sandinistas. And they have a chapbook coming out from a press next year. So I, it's amazing to watch that happen, to watch someone, to watch two people you would never think really had anything in common or, and to watch them teaching each other and inspiring each other and creating something new and beautiful and a real true literary friendship. I, I don't, they hadn't ever met in person until we had the Festival of Friendship and then we brought them in. Um, they came to read. Rebecca Batten Weiss is another key player with Revolution of Tenderness, and this was really her conference. So we were all there together for the first time in the flesh, but we all felt so, like we've known each other for years. We're like deep soul friends, and it, it, it's almost like, I know you. How have I never seen you before? <laughs> and so it is really special when you come into contact personally and in the flesh, but it doesn't mean that the bond and the, the friendship isn't there just because it's out in the ether. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the author Jessica Messman-Griffith. We're talking about many things, including her 2013 book, Love and Salt, which she co-wrote with Amy Andrews. We're also talking about the various conferences that she has helped to curate, including the Revolution of Tenderness, Trying to Say God, and the Festival of Friendship. And she is also the curator of the Sick Pilgrim blog. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the author Jessica Messman-Griffith about many of her projects, including the 2013 book Love and Salt, which she co-wrote with uh, Amy Andrews. We're talking about the many types of conferences that she helps to curate that invite people out of their brokenness to come and, uh, and learn about their artistic side and their faith side. Uh, and we're also talking about uh, the online communities that she helps to shepherd, including the Sikh Pilgrim community. I'm wondering if you can kind of sum up what you'd like to see happen in the next three years. You've begun to give us pieces of it, but give me the through line of this. I want to find those those artists and bring them together in these little programs and communities wherever I can get a foothold, really. So that's what I'm I'm looking to do now. I believe that art can change lives and hearts and be healing and be another path to God. And if that's a gift that I can give and a gift I can receive from another artist, that's that's my life's work. That's enough for me. So I, I just want to keep creating those spaces where those encounters can happen, where people can come into communion and share their gifts. I'm going to ask you now kind of a, a personal question, and you may choose not to answer it or you may answer it in any way that you wish. But given this journey that you've been on, what is the current state of your faith? I know that your, your faith over time has kind of waxed and waned. Yeah. And so where are you now? 
honestly, I have a lot of frustrations with Catholicism. I'm, I'm a lifelong Catholic, cradle Catholic. But I have, this past couple years politically, have been really damaging to a lot of people's faith. And honestly, I see it because I run these communities. I see what happened because the Catholic Church in America has become so closely aligned with a certain kind of politics and a certain set of political ideals that to me do not seem to represent the Catholicism that I have always practiced or believed in. So I'm having trouble, and I see that trouble reflected in a lot of people in our community. People feel sort of betrayed by the church right now. And a lot of people have left. Other people have come in, but a lot of people have left because they feel like this isn't, this isn't right. Something's, something's gone off the rails here when we're preaching politics from the pulpit, which a lot of us heard during the election year. So that's been challenging, but I, I always, I have to remind myself, like, Catholicism, I'm of the Graham Greene variety. It's, it's a birthmark. It's not going anywhere. And even if I need to take periodic breaks and explore other faith traditions or go to church somewhere else, like, it's always in me. And that's the, you know, there's this wonderful book that I recently discovered out of print from the 70s, I think, by a writer named Rosemary Houghton called The Catholic Thing. And that's, yeah, okay. So The Catholic Thing, like, what is that something that isn't embodied in the actual Catholic churches? Like, you can go, you can read books about Catholicism. You can, you can know the history of the church. You can, and then you can go into a Catholic church and be like, what is this? This isn't what I was reading about. Like, this isn't the like beautiful, mysterious, deep, rich, you know? And so I think it's the Catholic imagination. Like it, it is just, it's something that is so much more like diffuse and, and available to everyone. And people either like love it or hate it, but like everybody recognizes it, I think on some level. Like, so there's, that's what, you know, gets me excited about my faith again is when I, I realize it, it's not contained in like a certain parish or a certain church building or even in the magisterium. It, it, it is so much deeper than that for me. It's so much more personal that it's never going to, it's never going to leave me, even if I wish it would sometimes, <laughs> even if I wish I could be anything else. Like my Catholicism is just, it's who I am. So I, I have a habit when interviews begin to wind down, I have a couple questions that I normally ask my guests. And you've touched on this a lot, but, but I'd like to get explicit about it. And, and the questions are, what is it that causes you frustration? And then we pivot from that to what is it that gives you hope? And so I'm going to start out and ask here, midpoint in your journey, this artistic experiment and this invitation to others to speak from their vulnerability, what is it that still frustrates you? Oh, everything frustrates me. Um, do you mean what frustrates me about faith or about the about writing, about art, or well, about? I would actually be interested in in if you took any of those and sliced okay. the orange in any of those ways. I think okay. that would be fascinating to hear you. It say. It might be the same answer for all of them. I think it's gatekeeping. I can't stand it. Nothing makes me angrier than gatekeeping, and I see it in the church. I see, you know, some people welcome, some people not. I, it is very frustrating to me to have this beautiful banquet table set, but only certain people can sit there and eat it. 
that's always going to call me. And it's the same way in the literary world. It's the same way in the art world. And in the art world, you know, you, you get stuck in a rut. You invite the same speakers to the conferences every year. I mean, especially in the Catholic world, you can just predict who's going to be on the panels and who's going to be the keynote because we go with the safe choice. We go with the person we think is going to attract the most people. I don't know, but I, I get very frustrated with that, with the reluctance, with the constant complaining that we're, we know we aren't producing anything new and great, and yet the constant resistance to allowing new people to come in and bring in that life, or the deliberate ignoring of people who don't, who are doing amazing work, but maybe don't line up with what we think is doctrinally correct. That's always going to bother me, and it's always going to be a you know a battle in the work that I do is trying to get those doors open and seats at the table for for everybody that should be there. But what gives me hope is the people, the people I meet, the the relationships I have found. I I have been I am so rich in friendship because of these projects, and I am such <laughs> I, I am I am such a more um, I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like my life is made so full by the encounters I have with these people who are so willing to be honest and open and vulnerable and to walk alongside each other and just to see them really flourishing by just having the opportunity to be heard, to be seen. I, I've seen people literally come back to life. And that that's why I'll keep trying to, you know, bust the doors down to let them in. Jessica Messman-Griffith, I've admired you from afar for a long time, and I'm very inspired by the work that you do. I am so thankful that I got a chance to talk to you today. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Jessica Messman-Griffith. She is a Catholic writer, and she began a literary friendship over a decade ago in 2005 with Amy Andrews, and those collected letters became the 2013 book Love and Salt, a spiritual friendship shared in letters. The book won the 2014 Christopher Award for literature that affirms the highest values of the human spirit. She's widely published. She's written books including being included in the Best American Essays. She's also the author of Grace-Filled Days and co-author of The Daily Inspiration for Women, and she's currently at work on a second memoir of her Catholic girlhood in southern Louisiana called Eden Isles. She's the curator of the Sick Pilgrim blog and the online spiritual community of the same name, which features writers and artists who engage with their Catholic faith in a variety of ways. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. It's made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.